Hello Trippers, Alex Zane here, film journalist, movie fan and your host for a trip to the movies. I am currently in our podcast studio a mile beneath the streets of London and in a moment my guest this week, the wonderful director Simon Kethlin-Jones will be talking about his fantastic new movie The Family Plan and taking us on his perfect trip to the cinema. Thanks for downloading the podcast. This episode is brought to you by Odeon. Tis the season for giving. And if you really want to treat a loved one this Christmas, there's no better gift than that cinema feeling. Sinking into comfy seats, absorbing spectacular surround sound whilst being immersed in cinematic wonder. It's a feeling like no other. And you can gift that cinema feeling to a lucky loved one with an Odeon gift card. Pick one up at your local Odeon or on online and cover someone else's snacks, drinks, cinema tickets, or all three. And best of all, no wrapping up. Odeon say we make movies better, so why not make a fellow film lover's Christmas better too? Tis the season after all. Also, if you'd like to watch today's interview in Glorious Technicolor, do head over to our Trip to the Movies YouTube channel and please, while you're there, hit subscribe and help us grow this pod into a giant temple of film. For all the latest updates and to get in touch with us, you'll find us at Trip to Movies Pod. That's at Trip to Movies Pod on all social media. Right then, time to introduce today's guest who I interviewed just last week on Zoom, so let's do this. Hello and welcome to A Trip to the Movies, where each week a special guest takes us on their perfect trip to the cinema. This week, we're joined by a brilliant filmmaker who is about to unleash a duo of Mark Wahlberg movies into the world. Early next year sees the Wahlberg-starring dog-based adventure movie Arthur the King hit cinemas, but before that, he joins me this episode to talk about action comedy. The Family Plan, starring Michelle Monaghan alongside Wahlberg as a couple stuck in a rut when all hell breaks loose. Here to talk about that film and take us on his perfect trip to the movies, it's the excellent Simon Kethlin-Jones. Simon, welcome to the show. How are you? Hi, I'm very well. Thank you so much for having me on. very excited to see how our, our debt cinema is going to be today. It's going to be a wonderful journey, I'm sure. Tell me, first of all, where you are, because we're about to start talking about um, a big transcontinental movie set in the US. Um, are you based out there or are you based here? I am based in Somerset, within hearing distance of the Glastonbury Festival, which I visit and love every year. And uh, so I live, I live surrounded by fields, but I work mostly in America or London. But, mm. you know, when I'm on, on my own time, I'm a country bulkin. So wait, are you are you close enough to the Glastonbury Festival where you get the complimentary tickets courtesy of Michael Evis for the disruption that it's causing? I am. And I <laughs> use them. Yes, yes, absolutely. And, you know, we forgive him for the disruption because of that. I'm sure I'm sure you do. As 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 you're watching the headline act on that Saturday night, whoever it may be, I'm sure you're going, This is fine, Michael. Do yeah, it every year. Absolutely, absolutely. Yeah, I'm a fan. I'm a fan. So that movie I mentioned uh, in question, The Family Plan, arriving on Apple TV Plus on December the 15th. Great family viewing just in time for Christmas. Uh, give us an idea of what it's about. Just a rough idea. Well, it's an action comedy. There's a lot of action. And there's a lot of fun. But it's about, at the heart of it, it's about a fairly normal family uh, led by suburban, slightly boring dad, Mark Wahlberg living in a cookie-cutter uh, suburban area, you know, traditional 
family that's a bit in a bit of a rut, stuck in stuck in the groove, kids watching screens too much, all that. Um, but then suddenly, and I won't tell you everything, but suddenly some of his past catches up with him, Dan, who's played by Mark, and he has to take his family um, straight away on a road trip to escape a bunch of murderous assassins who are trying to kill a lot of them. So it suddenly becomes a road movie going from Buffalo to Las Vegas. And they get to Las Vegas because they're going to try and they're going to meet somebody who's going to fix up an escape for them. Uh, does that happen? Of course it doesn't. And there's a huge showdown at the end. Um, it's about the most fun I've ever had making a film. And I really hope it's something that people will find fun to watch. I hope they, they see themselves in the real family. I, I hope they see that it's not just a sort of total piece of escapism, but I think it's fun. I think it's got one of the best performances by a baby I have ever seen. You've got to see that to believe it. <laughs> oh my um, God, we're going to talk about Max. We're going to talk about oh, Max. Oh, good, good, yeah, good, good, yes. Yeah, yeah. Um, don't, don't, think I, don't think I didn't notice Max. Uh, I want to talk to you about that. I'm going to wait until we're actually on our trip because there's a, there's a certain point I want to talk about that. But just before we get on to that, I mean, you touched on how you work in the US, you work in London, and, and recently you've largely been doing high-end TV shows, uh, Dwayne Johnson's Ballers, the Russell T. Davis show, Years and Years, Jason Momoa's C. So how did you first get approached Um to do the family planet and what was it appe that appealed to to you because you like you said it's the most fun you've had directing did you well, know it was going to be that no but i had an inkling i had fun enough i did a film a much smaller film with mark Wahlberg a couple of years ago which is called arthur the king coming out march 22nd at a cinema near you 2024 very exciting for us all okay so you've done um, that already i saw that i saw that on your cv i was gonna say yeah. like i thought that had happened after this it's one of those ones the, the strange things of film and uh, film distribution basically with that film i'd known mark and i'd known his producing partner um from before do you know that mark was a executive producer on ballers and being honest, COVID had disrupted things. They had a director and he fell out of this previous film, so they desperately needed someone. And they very kindly, or at least maybe in a Hail Mary kind of way, gave me a rat ring uh, about this. It's a dog movie. And I, mm. I loved it and signed up for it. And we went out to the Dominican Republic. And I've got to tell you, this sounds like PR puff. Mark Wahlberg is the most fantastic person to work with. He is so cool. It was fun. He's very, very supportive. He's very professional. He's super talented. You know, I mean, I'm sounding like some awful fanboy, but he was great to work with. So when the family plan came along, and I'm, I'm hoping that they they thought of me first for that. I don't know if that's true. I was going, oh, that's got to be interesting because, I mean, Mark's good in anything he does. But one of the things I love seeing him do is humor or comedy because even in his serious stuff, he keeps... He keeps sort of interesting humor to stuff, but this is more comedy. And I thought he'd be really, really good, and he was. Did he manage over the years of working with him on Ballers, of Arthur and the King? Um, has he managed to convince you of his uh, crazy gym routine of getting up <laughs> at 3 a.m. to begin his workout? I have been to his gym workout, but I have to say I was in street clothes and I did not work out. I chatted while he did. <laughs> wow. No, I mean, that's that's kind of real, you know. I mean, they do get up. Mm -hmm. He's got, you know, he still doesn't have a big old trust. He has a couple of people who work with him. And they get up at 3, 4, 5 a.m. And they really do do a workout. Mm -hmm. And they do it five days a week, sometimes six days a week. So there's no PR going on there. He just does the work. Yeah. 
that level of commitment, I think he brings to his his roles as well. But I wanted to talk about um, you touched on it. This this movie starts, and I, I think its success uh, for me is that by the time you get to all hell breaking loose, you've engaged with what is a very relatable couple dealing with a very relatable subject, which is the idea that so many couples have been through where you get stuck in a rut, routine, things become boring, and and one of you's happy with that and one of you's not happy with that, which is exactly what we have with Mark Wahlberg and Michelle Monaghan's uh, characters. Uh, tell me about seeing the pair of them bring that relatability to life because they it feels very authentic. When you've got someone as good as Mark, you want to you want to have someone who's going to be a match to him, who's going to not not sort of back down. You're not, not I don't mean not back down, but you know, just be occupy the same space on the screen. And Michelle was very up for that and very comfortable with herself. I think it's you know when an actor's comfortable with themselves, that that gives them a great place to start from. And like you say, although it's a sort of big Hollywoodish movie, it is actually about a sort of a very normal family and. That family is not, they're not bad, but they're in the rut. They're all a bit stuck. They don't really talk to each other. They have sex on Thursdays. They have tacos on Wednesdays, you know, and they've got their routine. And um, for me, it was really important that that the audience sort of saw themselves in those roles because we're we're sending these people on a road trip across America. You know, we've all been stuck in our cars with our parents and kids. And- You know, it's great or it's not. Um, and I just wanted people to see both the good things and the bad things about being in a family. And then, you know, the writer was very clever. It gave, he used this film as a chance to sort of see how the family in these strange circumstances actually comes closer and closer together. Yes, yeah, so this this is David Coggeshall. Uh, yes, they just done. It's just an orphan first kill. So I yes, mean, this is street, streets apart, but it sort of inhabits the same sort of uh, orbit of cinema as, as uh, really enjoyable family films like Were the Millers, uh, yep. maybe the the, the the Vacation movie, a little soup son of Mr. and Mrs. Smith in there. So yeah, it's, it's a, it's, I mean, it's coming out at the perfect time when everyone's going to be gathered around the TV at Christmas because it is something that is, there's something for everyone. Yeah, yeah, I, I, I think so. It's, it's a, it's a PG-13, so you probably don't want five-year-olds watching it, but I think you can... You know, it's not it's not that raunchy. Um, I think there's not too much swearing. There's there's lots of action, but it's not sort of violent, bloody action. But more to to your point, yeah, I think I think you can sit down. I think it's sort of fun enough for you to relax and engaging enough for you to have to sort of concentrate just a little bit. Um, but you know, I don't I don't know. I'm, I'm I don't want to get too cocky here. People might watch it and go, oh, I don't like that. But I think it's great, and I hope you see it. I hope you see it. And any movie uh, which has uh, Kieran Hines as the big bad is it oh is all God. right in my book. You know, what an actor. Yeah, <laughs> he's he's so nice. We spent last that my family came out. We spent last Thanksgiving with him uh, in Atlanta. We were, and he was so lovely. Bought a lovely bottle of wine. It was telling jokes, and then the next day he was threatening to kill people on screen. <laughs> it was really terrifying. <laughs> Yeah, I so there was an there was an AMC uh, series recently called The Terror uh, that I watched him in, and he's just um, just phenomenal in it. He's uh, he's just a great actor. Yeah, um, yeah, yeah. You mentioned you mentioned action. Um, let's talk about some of that action. Um, this is your most action packed movie so far, I would say. Would that be fair? By 
25 miles. Absolutely, yes. So I want to pick out a couple of my scenes. I'm going to try and avoid spoilers. I, che I checked the trailer. Uh, both of these moments are in the trailer, so I feel like I'm in a safe place. At the yep. first action sequence, I want to pick out um, the supermarket fight, <laughs> uh, which involves uh, Mark Wahlberg having a proper, proper, proper movie fight with a baby strapped <laughs> to his front in a papoose. Now, right. you take the you take the baby out of that, and that is still a cracking fight. What does the script say when you see that sequence on the page? What's it actually saying, and what what is actually delivered on screen from you as the director versus what's on the page? Well, I think the, 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 it was absolutely on the page that that the baby was in a Bjorn, and that a big fight ensues. And then this is the moment where Mark Wahlberg transitions from a boring, well, not boring, but a very normal suburban dad who's conventional as hell. And suddenly we see that he's got some incredible moves. You know, I think there was a moment where he's knocked to the ground on his back and he does a sort of what they call a tip up, which you and I, or yeah. certainly I could never do, where you just use your core muscle to flip yourself back to the feet. And he does that with a baby on his chest. And, you know, I think I think that was a, it was a genius. Because as you say, without the baby, you know, it's a good scene. It's a, it's a good old fight scene. But with a baby, the whole, the rules, the jeopardy, everything else changes. You've got to be really careful um, that, you know, the baby doesn't look like it's being hurt. And you've got to be really careful that the baby isn't being hurt, by the way, because, of course, you know, we have to be incredibly respectful of all our collaborators when we're working with them, and particularly a baby. So there's a baby actually strapped to, I guess, either Mark Wahlberg or his stunt double during that scene. It's not, it, there's actually a baby there for some of it. I, for, I really... for, for a lot of it, yes. I mean, for a lot of it, there's, um, you know, of course, for the for the dangerous bits we used a dummy because um, you don't you, you don't really have stunt babies because they're just babies babies. We have two <laughs> we have two twins, um, and called Ilya, Iliana and Vienna, and uh, this we shot this scene probably the second week of filming, which perhaps was a mistake on my part. I, I always like to get something big out of the way, and we started doing it and. We sat the baby on, and obviously we're not doing the whole fight thing, but Mark Wahlberg is like looking like he's dodging things, and the baby starts crying. We go, oh, okay. And then we calm it down, and then it starts crying again. We go, oh, well, let's swap babies, get the new baby. Baby starts crying, and everyone on the whole crew suddenly goes, oh, my God, we've got 71 shoot days with this baby. What is it going to be like? And so, you know, we soldiered on. We had to do lots of fixes um, later. We it, we didn't, we we did a little bit of visual effects, but we always used the real baby doing the real expressions and stuff like that. And fortunately, the scene worked out really well. But I, I must say, my, my stomach, my heart was in my mouth at the end of that. I was going, this is the beginning of my action movie career and it's ended now. You wouldn't know to watch the baby. It looks like it's having a, a, a hell of a time. Uh, but good, but good advice there. If anyone does end up having twins, get into the movie industry because yes. labor laws for, for for child performers. If you've got twins, there, there is there is a need. Okay, supermarket fight done. That's amazing, amazing first action sequence. Next one uh, I want to mention is uh, the motorbike chase, uh, which ends with a, a villain having his helmet filled with milk from a baby's bottle. So my, my question based on this is, how challenging is it to get that balance right directing action? Because you need the jeopardy, you need the threat, 
but you also are making an action comedy. So you've got a gag in there as well. Finding that balance as a director, how tough is that? Well, that's a great question. And the answer is, it's really tough or for me anyway. I mean, there's lots of directors who can just do that playing Sally on the head, but it's hard. I mean, again, there's a great thing. And then, you know, you've got to give David the writer credit for this as well, because there's a great setup in the, okay, it's a car chase or a motorbike chase. We've seen loads of them, but there's two cool elements. Firstly, the Mark Wahlberg character cannot wake his family up because they don't know about this. And if he does, they will go, oh my God, why are being shot at? What have you've lied to us? You know, all that. Um, and secondly, there's one one of the family members is awake, and that's the baby. Um, and so, <laughs> you know, you're seeing a car chase through a baby's eyes. The baby's participating and and indeed contributing to and helping helping win the battle. So, yeah, the the tone of that is really important. It's got to be fun, but you've got to have some bone crunching crashes. You've got to think that people are getting hurt or could get badly hurt. You've got to think that a near miss is just that close. Um, and this is a, one of those scenes where I liked it so much that I just fought tooth and nail to get more budget, not by getting more money from the studio, but by being clever with other scenes and stealing money from one place. Because it was one of those ones where I thought, we might as well just go for this. And we ended up shooting it for a, a week. And we had some second unit work as well. And... Uh, it's it's not my first car chase, but it's my first proper car chase, and you know it's I I do hope it's not my last. <laughs> it's great, it's great. Um, okay, uh, the final one, and this is just me going. This is awesome. That final sequence, that hotel, is that a set? Did you find that? Did you find where where is that hotel? Like, is it a combination of a real hotel exterior and interior and a studio? Because I'm fascinated by it. The whole thing, it's a studio. The the both the the sort of hotel suite and uh, there's a hotel rooftop. Mm. Both of those are in studios in Atlanta with blue screen okay. views outside. And then the actual hotel itself is, I don't know if I don't, well, uh, yeah, okay, I'll admit it. It's completely CG um, from nothing. It's, it's, it's sort of plonked in Las Vegas next to, sort of in place of a, uh, where the a place called the Stratosphere is. So it's uh -huh. it's it's not real, but hopefully it looks real. It bloody does, because I'm like I was like I wonder where that hotel is. Was it, I wonder if it was really was it shutting down? Did they find an old hotel that was about to be? I was I, I just fascinated me. But thank you for pulling back the curtain on that one. Like I said, we're going to talk more about the family plan as we go on our journey. It's out on Apple TV Plus on December the fifteenth. Uh, we are going to talk about it more. But right now, it's time to leave this reality, Simon, and enter a dimension of pure film where our virtual cinema awaits. You are our we are your audience. Let's go on a trip to the movies. So we push open the doors to our temple of film and find ourselves in the foyer. There's an excited buzz there always is in a cinema foyer. The hum of anticipation. It's your perfect cinema trip, Simon. Who have you picked, living or dead, to go with you? Well, there were so many I could pick. I, I have picked Sam Shepard, uh, the actor, the writer. He's tragically dead. He died a few years ago. I worked with him on a on a TV thing where he it was sort of like a Western thing about the gold rush. And he was a fantastic person to work with. He's a cinema and theatre icon. He played Sam Shepard. Uh, as I played uh, Chuck Yeager, I'm sorry, in um, the... the what, Oh, I've got the name of the film. The one about the sound barrier. Uh, the right stuff. Um, 
he's a great writer. He's a sort of New York beatnikish legend. He was the grumpiest, funniest, most infuriating, kindest actor I've ever worked with. And I would love to sit there and rustle my popcorn really loudly to annoy him because it would annoy him. So despite his grumpiness, when you worked with him, it was still a pleasure to work with him. It was a joy. Absolutely, yes. And and you're going with him to A, wind him up and B, be able to chat film with him, I guess. Exactly. Exactly right. Sam Shepard is who you are going to the cinema with. Now there is a clock, Simon, on the wall in the foyer. It reads a specific time. What time of day are we going to the cinema? Well, I'm going to give you the time we're not going to go, but we nearly did, which is 4am to guarantee the cinema is totally empty because I do love a big cinema with nobody in it. But the clock says 5 to 9pm because we are going to the same huge cinema and it's absolutely jammed because, you know, although it's cool to watch films in an empty cinema, watching in front of a huge audience is what cinema is all about. And so that, that is absolutely the time I pick. Uh, it was nice over the the Oppenheimer, sorry, the Barbenheimer, Barbenheimer. summer that we yeah. just had. Barbenheimer, I mean, what a thing! But also just to go in, I went to see Barbie in a in a screening on the opening weekend where people were doing the the Barbenheimer double bill, and it's been so long since I've been in a, a literally sold out auditorium, and it was it was just a pleasure to see, and I, I hope that was the the spark that ignited people going back to the cinema en masse. Absolutely amazing, and and yeah, and 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 how, whether it was marketing or just probably wasn't so much marketing. It was just like you saying the sort of human need to really commit to the cinema because we haven't done very much. And then you've got the two diametrically opposite movies, but Barbie and Oppenheimer. And I went, I like you, I went, I went to both movies, and they were both. 100% booked. It, uh, it made me feel a little bit of nostalgia for when that was a regular occurrence, but hopefully it will continue. Now, obviously, um, uh, your movie, The Family Plan, is coming out on um, Apple TV+, Plus. but do you, in the process of uh, finessing it, ever get the opportunity to sit in a busy auditorium and watch the film on a big screen to see an audience's reaction? Quite a few times, actually. We, when when I was doing the edit, as we were getting close to showing the studio or, or uh, you know, getting further towards the thing, uh, we would screen it in a sort of medium-sized preview theatre with friends, um, just because you want people to start giving you some opinions. Uh, so there was, that was helpful with the shaping. And then we had, I, I can't remember, I think it was three test screenings, and this is quite tough, tough business there, where you take your film, in this case we went to Arizona, you take it to a three, four hundred seat cinema, you know, big-ish, um, and they show it. And then there's a company, the, the testing company, and they get everyone to say comments and write scores. And it's really, really scary because you can't dress it up. You know, the the studio or, or the Apple or whoever's wants to know how the film's going to do and whether we should make any changes and so on. So it's really tough, but it's scored great. So I, I was very lucky because I think, you know, I'm, if it had been bad, I, we, I'd probably still be here going, what are we going to do? The studio going to say, say you've got to make it better or whatever. But, you know, we, we sort of thought from the beginning that we had a film that people kind of engaged in a little bit. So, you know, we didn't really make many changes as we went. It's a weird thing, isn't it? I sort of, you know, you, you, you have these people that sort of rally against this whole idea of a, a focus group and it should be the director, the filmmaker, the writer and director's vision for what this film should be and, and it should then, you know, go out in its purest form. It shouldn't be focus grouped to within an inch of its life. 
But when I sat in Barbie, people en masse were laughing at things that I didn't find funny. And for the first time, I suddenly saw the worth in these focus groups because you have your own idea of what you like, but potentially that might be just like quite an obscure thing compared to what people en masse are going to enjoy in a movie. I mean, I completely agree. And I, I think you'll find almost everybody, I think, and I'm talking about huge film directors here as well and, and, and studios and actors and so on, almost everybody will test their movie. And like you say, are they being cynical corporations or are they just trying to get the best return on their money, which is it's, they spend a lot of money, or are they trying to give the audience the best experience? Um, mm. I personally, and you know, I've tested two films in my life, and they both tested really well. So I'm obviously pro the thing. If if, if it had gone badly, <laughs> I might say, "Oh, those stupid corporations! What are they doing? They don't understand." But I th I think it's I think it's a good thing. And and you know, we've all been to see films by great auteurs that are really really long. And I'm not talking about Killers of the Flower Moon, by the way, because that's really, really long and utterly genius movie. But you see auteurish films that you go, that's too long. And you you sort of know that because they have Final Cut, um, even if even if they tested it, they said, oh, I'm going to leave it like that. And you go, fair enough. Good for you. You're an artist. But but I found your film boring. OK, I get I get exactly what you're saying. Yeah, it's um, it's it, 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 it's an interesting thing. But yeah, once again, just from my recent experience um, over the summer, I was like, oh, I get it. I get it now. So we're going at five to nine in the evening. So the cinema is packed. Uh, you booked the tickets for this trip, Simon. Thank you very much. Where in the auditorium are we going to be sitting? Well, I'm assuming it's it's a big old cinema. And I'm thinking like probably E22 and E23 in the mm -hmm. middle quite near the front. I'm not one of those people who sits in the front row. I, I think it's kind of a cool thing to do. I just get neck ache when I do that, you know. Um, but I want to be fairly close. I want to be surrounded by people. I don't want an aisle seat. Um, I don't want to be on an you know, um, next to sort of gaps. Um, I want to be really immersed. You know, these days they've got this new thing called Atmos, which is like speaker, they've got speakers in the roof. I hope we'll get into one yeah. of those cinemas. And they've got yep. all the surrounds and stuff like that. And it, there's a sweet spot. It's probably not E22, actually. Sound people will tell you. But it, that's where I find I get the most benefit of the picture and, and all the sound. Yeah, this the Dolby, the Dolby Atmos speakers. Yeah, I remember the first time I, I heard that. And you're like, oh, that's that's new. And um, what is what is your favorite cinema go, to go to? Are we are we basically going to create our virtual cinema? We're going to replicate a, a favorite cinema of yours, or is this just a, a cinema of dreams? Well, do you know what? I was filming in Las Vegas, um, and on this full of holy plan, and just after we left. They opened a new venue. It's not a cinema venue, a place called The Sphere, which is this crazy uh -huh. dome. At the moment, I think you two are playing, and they have film or, or, or visuals all around. And I'm wondering whether we could adapt The Sphere's cinema projectors for my for our screening here um, and, uh, and show it in The Sphere. Let's do it. I've seen video footage of it. It looks insane. Oh so, yeah, all right. All right, this, this virtual cinema, we've replicated the sphere in Las Vegas. The final thing we need before we leave the foyer. Oh, the air is full of wonderful smells. All manner of snacks and foodstuffs are available at the various counters. What are you choosing to eat? Well, I'm afraid I'm going to be greedy. Uh, I'm not going to choose one thing. I want stuff. First of all, I'm going to choose popcorn, sweet and salty. 
Um, partly because I'm going to rattle it to annoy Sam Shepard, but partly because <laughs> I want to be eating salt popcorn and then suddenly go, wait a minute, that tastes sweet. And then every every few layers, you have your mind changed a bit. I'm going to yeah. have one of those disgusting hot dogs covered with ketchup and mustard that spills everywhere and you've got, you get through 14 napkins. And finally, I'm going to have a bag of minstrels, which are, you know, those big chocolates, okay. a bit like a bit like M&M's, but better. Because uh, I mm. love the rattle they make, again, to annoy Sam, but also they're delicious. And you eat the minstrels separately because I, I, this has been a learning curve uh, doing this show, but some people chuck their minstrels into a warm popcorn, allowing the minstrels to then melt in the popcorn, creating some sort of wonderful, salty, sweet delight. Well, I'm afraid in my screening, those people would be thrown out straight away. <laughs> <laughs> okay, good. I like the fact we've got definite rules here. Now, you said <laughs> earlier you work in America. Tell me, you've been, I'm sure, to the cinema in America. Yeah. Have you experienced this this butter that they have that we don't have in the UK, this butter that they, they put on their popcorn there? Yes, I have. Horrifying. Kind of, <laughs> kind of great. I have eaten it, but it's like, it's like, you know... Kentucky Fried Chicken grease poured over. I mean, it's not. They say it's butter. They, I, I think they're probably lying, but you know, it's probably palm oil. <laughs> or something. It's horrifying, and it's again. I'm afraid. I, I'm glad. I'm glad you're allowing me to have a couple of rules. I don't want to be a fascist about this, but we're not mm. having that butter at this cinema. Great. No, this is this is this is great. It's it, this is a very very British cinema. None of that butter. Right. Exactly. A very British. <laughs> a very British hot dog as well. As in, not quite as good as it would be in America, <laughs> but nevertheless, we've got everything we need. So let's leave the foyer and walk down the corridor towards the auditorium. Now this corridor is looking pretty bare at the moment, so I'm going to put up posters along the wall that depict some of your most important movie memories. And the first poster I'm putting up depicts your fondest movie memory. Well, it's it's a picture of the, the poster won't be a picture of a movie exactly. Mm. When I was very young, I worked at 20th Century Fox in London as a mailboy, which I'm very proud of. It's like one of those really rubbishy job. The only good thing about it was that uh, they had one of London's best um, preview theatres, and they would you know they would do millions of publicity screenings. So I would sneak into the projection box with with my friend as the projectionist. And it was, A, it's because I'm old, it was a long time ago, and B, the, the, the theatre was very old-fashioned. And they had the projectors that had these amazing carbon rods that you would have to create an electrical charge to light them, and then they would burn like magnesium. And that was the light that would burn through the lens, um, behind the film, through the lens, pushing the image onto the screen. And so my fondest memory is seeing the film through the glass of the projection booth and sort of having to shield my eye like that um, because of the brightness of the uh, carbon rod. Wow. So wait, so is this is this the 20th Century Fox in Soho Square in London? Exactly. Uh, or, or sadly, the, the former 20th the former, Century Fox. Yeah. Bizarrely, my, uh, when I was cutting the family plan, my editing place was literally right next to the window, which was of the mailroom where I used to work. Oh, wow. So, I mean, literally, you are you are a testament to that idea of like you start in, at the bottom rung of the ladder working in the mailroom at 20th Century Fox. And then here you are editing like your biggest movie yet with Mark Wahlberg in it. And you're looking back on where yeah. the journey began. Yeah, it's a reminder of your of your, you know, your humble beginnings and your your origins and. You know, uh, it's as you say, the place is closed now. They're going to sell it to some highest bidder or whatever. But yeah, it was a, 
it was a it was a great building, and it's where I learned a lot of stuff, and it's where I fell in love with cinema because of that preview theatre. It was the first preview theatre I ever went to in, in London. Um, I just can't believe they've taken down the neon. That really puzzles me. It's like, yeah, I don't, I know, I know. Like that that was iconic. You'd look up and you'd see 20th Century Fox in neon at the very top. I'm like, fine, the 20th Century Fox don't exist. Have Disney gone? Yeah, we can't have any reminders. Get rid of that as well. I know. It's great shame. Great shame. I wonder. I wonder where it is. Oh, I tell you what, I had keys to the to the storeroom downstairs in this building. Mm-hmm. And I didn't realize that I could have stolen stuff and made a fortune because they had loads of Star Wars, uh, you know, like Stormtrooper suits for publicity. And they had a, they had millions and millions of 20th Century Fox uh, film posters, like old ones, like Some Like It Hot. And they had a whole bunch of posters uh, for a film called Revenge of the Jedi. And of course, it wasn't <sighs> Revenge of the Jedi. George yeah. Lucas thought that the Jedi were not a vengeful people, so he changed the movie title to Return of the Jedi. But if I'd stolen some of those posters, they would be worth a fortune. Mr. Trick. Mr. Trick, but morally, you're more intact as a human being. <laughs> yes. So that's, you yes. know, it's half of one, half of the other. Exactly. Right then, we're putting up a poster of the old 20th Century Fox building in Soho Square, London. The neon is pinging right the second poster as we carry on down the corridor depicts simon your worst movie memory well this is a film years ago called silver dream racer i think it might have starred david essex as a motorbike racer um and the film wasn't bad you know it wasn't a great film i watched it with my family but literally the day before i had just been dumped i was probably 15 or 16 i'd just been dumped by someone who was almost my girlfriend it wasn't you know fully efficient uh, official but i knew that things were on it was going great she was really into me we would spin on some dates everything was really great and then she just dumped me and said she'd gone back to her old boyfriend so i had to sit through the whole movie just feeling miserable as an awkward 16 year old teenage kid with his pa- embarrassed about being with his parents watching a film <laughs> that i didn't really care about and it was a miserable experience Oh man, that's awful. I mean, so would you recommend uh, Silver Silver Dream Racer as a good breakup movie? Did the movie help in any way? Is I don't I, I've no. not seen it myself. No, it wasn't. It was you know it was about some people who create a new motorbike that can win races and it sort of does, and then it has a slightly unhappy ending. And no, it was just like I, I absolutely would not recommend it for a breakup movie. I think you I don't know what you want for that. You want something like you know one flew over the cuckoo's nest. I did a bit of reading uh, around Silver Dream Race. I watched the trailer, uh, which is suitably 1980s. Anybody who's ever had a dream must see this film. It won't just wake you up. It will shake you up. Uh, (laughs) Which convinced me uh, to maybe watch it. uh, So you said it has a sad ending. Uh, you'll appreciate this as as, as a filmmaker, because I don't know whether you've ever had to toy with alternate endings. But apparently there are two completely different endings to this. One, David Essex crosses the line, puts his hands in the air, wins the British Grand Prix, and the film freezes. The other ending, he he crosses the line, puts his hands in the air, loses control of the bike, crashes into the pit wall and dies. That's the one I saw. Okay. Okay. (laughs) You saw the sad one. Yeah, apparently there's a completely different version where they just cut earlier and he's like alive. I did not know that. That's really funny because I remember, I mean, aside from, you know, my my whole life was a downer at that time. But I remember going, wow, that film's a real downer. 
Should have test screened it a bit more, maybe. <laughs> right. Uh, okay, our third poster that we're putting up depicts the last performance that brought you to tears. This was on Tuesday. I went to see a great movie called Anatomy of a Fall. Uh, is it Justine Trier, the writer and director, uh, with her husband? Yeah. Um, won the Palme d'Or um, at Cannes, which isn't always uh, a sort of, you know, guarantee of brilliance. And I thought it was a fantastic film. And there's two actors, there's lots of good actors in there, but or several good actors, but the there's the lead woman is called Sandra Hula or Hula. She's German, I think, but she speaks mostly French, mostly English and a bit of English, uh, French. And I won't go into it too much, but basically her husband has died and she's accused of killing him, but it seems like he hasn't, but she goes through it. She hasn't, but she goes through this trial. And she explains some elements of their relationship and it just had me in bits. And then she's got an 11-year-old kid who, and this poor kid has seen his dad die, seen his mother be accused, sitting in the courtroom, and the kid sort of gives some evidence, and there's he tells this story of, of a sort of sad thing that happened with him and his dad. And again, I was just like in buckets. So I thought, wow, twice, twice or three or four times actually in one movie. That's pretty good going. Uh, it's, it's an incredible movie. It's a movie that I, I cried at as well. I'm, but my, my tears, and this is this is a very personal thing. I t- I tend to find anything involving animals. Um, more upsetting than human characters. I, I haven't analysed it too much, but the dog, um, uh, Snoop, yes, the, yes, the kid's I remember. guide dog, uh, that, that scene with the dog, I, you know, it really got me. And then I, I sort of was like, God damn, that dog's a good actor. That dog won the Palm Dog at Cannes. Oh, he did? Damn. Well, that's that's interesting. Not to sort of hijack an Anatomy of a Fall, but uh, the, the dog was obviously not competing against the dog that was in my film called Arthur the King, which would have been a shoo-in for the Palm Dog because it was brilliant. <laughs> I, I did want to talk to you about Arthur and the Kid because I've read the synopsis. It, like you say, it comes out March next year. Uh, it sounds great. So Mark Wahlberg is doing a, a, an endurance race, an extreme adventure race across the Dominican Republic, finds an injured dog who then joins him on the race. That's all I know so far. Basically, that's a lot. That's a lot of it. Yeah, he's you know, it's the old. Again, this is this is Mark Wahlberg, so versatile, so sort of convincing and so accessible uh yeah he's playing a guy who's sort of not screwed up his life but screwed up his racing career it's kind of the old one last chance type movie Hmm. um instead of a bank job it's a race and uh he assembles a team and they're all sort of have their flaws and all have their strengths and then they find this dog and then their sort of their rules change you know what what makes you a winner what makes you successful, what makes you compassionate. You know, so it sounds like one of those preachy, annoying films. It's not. It's like, it's got, it's a great dog movie. Are you a, are you a dog owner yourself? I love dogs. I've got three dogs. I've got an Alsatian, a, a German uh, a German Shepherd, uh, a Border Collie, and their child, their daughter. And they're all badly oh, behaved and annoying, but I like them. <laughs> uh, I've got a, a, a huge, giant Whippet. Oh, I love a Whippet. Love a whippet, almost a greyhound, then. Right, and that's but whenever whenever people go, oh, that's a lovely greyhound. I go, he's a whippet. They just look <laughs> at me like I was had by a breeder. They were like, yeah, sure. He's... Uh, but yeah, no, I think that's partly why. And um, a big dog fan 
in movies. So I'm looking forward to Arthur and the King. And the dog was good to work with. It was a, gave a good performance. You know, the age-old adage, never work with children and animals. Well, I'll tell you what, it was easier to work with than the baby in, in the other film. This is what this is what I wanted to say. I mean, you mentioned earlier, you were like, oh, it was quite hard uh, working with uh, the baby. Max is the character of the baby yeah. in the family plan. Um, it's, it must have been a gift, though, in the edit, because so many of my laughs in the family plan... Uh, I mean, one of the, well, I'll come to that later, but the, the fact that you can have a, a henchman go careening through a billboard on his motorcycle, and then you get to button that action sequence with a baby going, <laughs> it's just wonderful, <laughs> laughing and clapping at the, the carnage. It was, it was, it was a definite joy. And because I was, I was moaning about the babies in, the, in that first scene, and it was a nightmare. But after about two weeks, both of them, but particularly one of them, one of the babies just clicked and sort of started to understand what we were after and started to realise that we weren't trying to be cruel to, to her. But incidentally, they were hers, the, the babies. Um, mm. So they they became lovely to work with. But yes, you know, I, I think in the first edit, I probably had about double the amount of baby laughs. And I thought, oh, okay. <laughs> That's you've got to you've got to be careful with this because the audience will yeah. think you're taking taking the uh, whatever. But um, yes, I think it, it's it's really fun to get that baby involved. You didn't want to make him into a sort of adult character, but you know he understands more than most babies would understand, and that makes it fun. So it's great. It sort of toes this line between is that baby is that clever or is it just a baby? Wow. Right. So yeah, it's. Max is a lot of a lot of fun in the movie. Um, all right, then it's time to put up our final poster. So so far we've got a poster for 20th Century Fox in Soho Square. We've got a poster of Silver Dream Racer. We've got a poster of Anatomy of a Fall. And this poster depicts your unpopular movie opinion. Well, I'm nervous to say this because I, on most levels, respect all of the people, including, funnily enough, Sam Shepard, uh, in the film I'm going to mention. But there is a, it is a great film, a Terence Malick film called Days of Heaven. Of course, it's the most beautiful looking film. Uh, and it is very, very powerful. But sometimes I find it a tiny bit boring. Um, and, I, you know, it's a controversial thing to say because it's one of the great movies. But I'm going to say it anyway. Okay, so this is this is Terence Malick's. This is his second film after after second Badlands. after after Badlands exactly. And uh, I believe it's I think it's ninety three percent on Rotten Tomatoes. Christy, Christy, the actor Christian Bale's favorite ever movie. Christian's never going to work with me, is he? <laughs> <laughs> um, have a listen to some of these facts and see whether you think uh, uh, someone could make a movie like this now, because obviously this was made in the seventies. Uh, after uh, filming for a short time, Terence Malick threw out the script altogether and filmed for close to a year, allowing the actors to find the story for the film as they went along. <laughs> well, that, so that's nice. That's a nice gig if you can get it. I don't think they'd have let me do that at Apple. <laughs> <laughs> I don't think they let you do that anymore. Anyway, I don't think I don't I don't think Martin Scorsese on Killers of the Flamingo go. Do you know what? Let's not do the script, Leo. Just see what happens for yeah. a year. No, I don't think so. Okay, well, um, let's put up a poster then for Days of Heaven. And we've arrived at the last set of doors that lead us into the auditorium. Now, I think I know the answer to this, but there is a crowd hoping to join you and Sam Shepard in this huge sphere auditorium. Do you want to let them in? Yes, I do. 
great. The crowd go wild. They're pouring into this Las Vegas-inspired sphere. Now, there's a few things we're going to do before we get to the movie you've picked for us to watch this evening. And the first thing we're going to play on the big screen is a trailer for the movie you're most looking forward to seeing at the cinema. Well, I'm I'm excited about Maestro, um, the Bradley Cooper film. Yeah, this is Bradley's second movie after A Star Is Born. After After A Star Is Born, I haven't seen it. I think I think I think I'm being sent a screener actually, but I want I think I want to go and see it in the cinema. This is the one where he, you know he plays Leonard Bernstein, um, and I've only read reviews, but it sounds like he's he's sort of found his mojo as a director. He's always been a fantastic actor. I mean, I liked uh, Star Is Born as well, but this one. Sounds like it's 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 kind of really classy. So I'm excited to see that. Yeah, he's. I mean, he's he's crazy, crazy talented, isn't he? So he's co-written this. He co-wrote a Star Is Born, directed a Star Is Born, and directing yeah. this. Obviously, like you say, a phenomenal actor. I think Steven Spielberg was meant to be directing this, and at one point, did you hear that? Well, I, I've seen that. I've seen that both Spielberg and um, Scorsese are executive uh, are producers. I think. Right. So I think yeah. you might be right about that. Yeah, I think that. I think the story goes uh, how, how 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 much truth there is to it. I don't know, but it's I, it could well be true. Um, Steven Spielberg was all set to direct it, and then Bradley Cooper showed him. A Star is Born, and specifically the scene where he performs Shallow at the start. And Steven Spielberg went, you know what? You direct Maestro. And that's how it happened. That's very interesting. Because, of course, Steven Spielberg did West Side Story, the movie. So, you know, obviously was probably in touch with the Bernstein Foundation and so on. So that's that's interesting. I'm, I'm going to believe your, your, your theory there. Let's go with it. Let's go with it. I have nothing to back it up with. It's rumour, it's hearsay, but it's now fact. Um, so let, let, let's just play a little game. Is there a historical figure who you would like to direct a movie biopic of? Do you have a sort of wish list of like someone in or in literature, something that you're like, oh, do you know what? I'd love to tackle a film on that subject about that person. Yeah, Napoleon. But somebody beat me to it. <laughs> <laughs> I'm really annoyed with Ridley Scott. <laughs> uh, right good let's move on to the movie moment is the next thing we're going to play that makes you literally or metaphorically pump your fist in the air well this is this is the magic of cinema when when this happens you as a filmmaker it, doesn't, you know, it hasn't happened to me that often but when when it happens as a filmmaker you must go oh fantastic i've got two for you very quickly um my my second choice is Star Wars, the original Star Wars movie, when uh, they're about to attack the Death Star and uh, Han Solo says, sorry, guys, I'm off. I'm going to take the money. I'm not involved in your fight. I, I don't want to know. And everyone's going, oh, my God, the rush. why is he doing that? But then, just at the crucial moment, um, I think Luke Skywalker's about to get blown out of the sky and the, the Millennium Falcon swings back in and Han Solo has had a fit of conscience and come back and says i got you back kid and the whole when i was in it i i watched it in the 20th century fox preview theater bizarrely which i'm telling you about and even the cynical um hacks and critics just cheered uh it's great <laughs> but i've got i'm gonna give you the give me the other one just because this is this is so cool thelma and louise they've had this terrible and very exciting time it's a great ruined movie and they just drive at 70 miles an hour away from the police off a cliff to their certain deaths. And, you know, obviously it's tragic, but you go, wow, what a bold choice by a writer and a director. 
What a dramatic image. And it just feels right for the characters. Lovely. We will play the movie moment that makes you pump your fist in the air. So you were saying of the two, because those are two great ones, you're definitely going Thelma and Louise. Over I'm going to go Thelma and Louise. Yeah, it's a, diff- it's a tough call, but that's where I'm going. It's done. So the next moment we're going to play is what you, Simon, consider cinema's most shocking moment. Well, that's... For this one, I had to... I mean, there's, there's loads, of course, but for this one, I went back to the 1970s, which, as I might mention later, probably my favourite cinematic decade. The film is One Flew Over the Cookies Nest. It's been a sort of thrilling, exciting... It's almost been a comedy uh, for a lot of the time. Jack Nicholson is brilliant. He's this wild rebel who's a, a, a criminal and he's done some bad stuff. He's been committed to a mental asylum and he's challenged everybody um, to consider their own madness and, in fact, how madness might be brought on by society, whatever. He's sort of, he's kinds of wins the day all the way through and he drives this nurse ratchet character mad. She's the evil, charismatic, beautiful chief nurse. But the shocking moment is when finally something terrible happens. He is blamed for it. He tries to kill. He tries to strangle Nurse Ratchet, basically. And she wins because she gets him lobotomized. And the, 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 the shocking moment is, and there's been a joke earlier on in the movie, he's had some electric, electric convulsive therapy, and he comes back sort of walking like a zombie, and the chief, who's his best friend in the thing, looks terrified. And then he suddenly laughs, and he's taking, he's taking the piss. But then, then the shocking moment, the end of the movie, or near the end of the movie, he walks back in and he has been lobotomized. You see the scars and they've taken his soul away, his sort of bright individuality. The state, the society, whatever has won. And it's a terrible, terrible moment. And, uh, you know, it leads to the chief breaking free from the mental asylum and, and perhaps running off to his own happy truth. But nevertheless, mm. it just really affected me. Yeah, and just hearing you describe it again took me back there. That is a that's a doozy of a shocking moment. We're going to play the end of One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest. All right, now through these lovely Dolby Atmos speakers in the sphere, we are going to play the line or piece of dialogue from a movie that most affected you. Yeah, yeah. Well, one of my favourite films um, is a film... Um, called Midnight Cowboy, starring John Voight and D- Dustin Hoffman. Uh, it's the story of a, a kind of a cowboy. I don't even know where he comes from. It's not Texas. I don't know where his home state is. But he flees to New York. You wonder why he's gone to New York. And he's he's gone. He's obviously escaping something. And he's um, he becomes a sort of like a male gigolo, or tries to. Um, and he meets Dustin Hoffman, who's a, almost like a trap. But anyway, the line I'm talking about is, and I, I might be misquoted, but I think it's Joe, you're the only one, or Joe, you're the only one, Joe Buck. And it's yeah. said in flashback by his girlfriend, who is basically raped by some people. And this is what destroys the relationship and makes him flee. Um, and he's just remembering, you're the only one. And you won't, you can't see it now. I mean, the audience can't see it because this is a podcast. But I've got a tattoo here on my shoulder which is so old that it's blurred now, but it says you're the only one. <laughs> so wait, when did you get that? Oh my God, 35 years ago. Must be 30 years ago. After watching Midnight Camera? Yeah, exactly. So what was it about that line that like 
affected you so much and made you get it tattooed? Well, it was such a, well, yes, it's, you don't want to sort of commemorate a sort of horrible scene with that, but I think it was, you know, even though everything was destroyed, it was kind of lovely that that John Voight's character had had a beautiful relationship. There was something fantastic and it was all destroyed. His life was turned to shit, basically. Um, and, you know, he went to New York to, to try and find escape, whatever. But it's a, it's a, it's one of the most beautiful, powerful films. Um, and, hmm. you know, I'll, I'll, it'll always be on my top ten list. Joe, you're the only one from 1969's Midnight Cowboy. Um, on a completely different tack, I'm a, I'm a big sucker for funny lines uh, and great deliveries of funny lines in the family plan. I think my favourite, just to take it completely, you know, separately as a line, <laughs> is where Michelle Monaghan goes, there's eyeball on my shoulder. Eyeball, Sean! <laughs> that line. It's just, she delivers it so well. That's right. I, th- I think she says effing. I don't know if I'm allowed to swear on your podcast. But she says, on, on, on fucking eyeball, Sean. Um, yeah, I mean, exactly. I think I'm really glad you picked that out. Because she's got such good comedy chops, Michelle. She's so fun and, you know, and truthful as well. A great a great moment. Uh, let's uh, get on to the final thing we're going to do before we get to the movie you've picked for us tonight. And that is to play what you, Simon, consider the best use of music in a movie. Well, I'm going to cheat for a moment and say a great film called Eroica, directed by Simon Catlin-Jones. I only say <laughs> this because it is the, it's really a TV film, but it's, um, it's a, a, a full performance of the Eroica Symphony by Beethoven. Um, and I'm mm-hmm. going to tell you now that Beethoven is the best composer I've ever worked with. Um, so that was pretty good. <laughs> but in the spirit of things... This is a. This is probably a bit of an obvious one, but I'm going to say it anyway. I think Reservoir Dogs did a little bit of a revolutionary thing, even though mm. it was some punk kid making a low budget movie. He kind of rocked the world in so many ways, and I did think it was such a great, great film. And you know, there's there's the, it's a very famous bit. I think Michael Madsen cuts off a policeman's ear while a song called Stuck in the Middle with You is playing. And it it became iconic, and you know I probably should have picked something more original, but it's such a fantastic moment. It's one of those moments when you watch it, you think you're discovering something in that cinema. So I thought, I thought that was a really bold, arrogant, cool, crazy choice. Yeah, it's, it, 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 I, I love that moment, and I think you're absolutely right. That was a real, I mean, for me as a kid, I was like a teenager when Reservoir Dogs came out and it was suddenly like every, you had to have that movie soundtrack. It was like full of hits that suddenly yeah, related yeah. to iconic moments in that movie. The other one being obviously when they're all walking down together and Little Green Bag comes on. You're like, yes. oh my God, this is so cool. Yes. Yeah, of course. Oh my God. Uh, right then, Simon, we've arrived. It is now time to announce to Sam Shepard and this packed auditorium the movie that you have decided to screen for us tonight. Simon, what are we watching? Well, it's a difficult one. Obviously, I've gone back and forth for this. Um... I knew it was going to be from the 1970s. I'm just going to come out and say it. It's going to be One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest. Um, one of those films, which we talked about it a little bit earlier. It's I think it's from a book by Ken Kesey. 
directed by Milos Forman, Jack Nicholson's greatest role, I would say. Um, some people say it's a sort of Jesus Christ parable about a sort of savant coming into a, a crazy world and teaching them all how to live. I don't know about that, but I think it's one of the funniest, most humane, touching, and ultimately, like we said before, utterly shocking movies. And I think it's genius on every single level. And I can quote vast chunks of it, and I will bore Sam by saying the lines just before the other actors do, uh, you know. But I think I think it's it's really special. And do you remember when you first saw it? Where you were? How old you were? I can't remember how old I was. I think it would have been. I think I would have been young. I think I would have been sort of seventeen or eighteen. I've obviously seen it quite a few times since. Um, I saw it in the cinema for sure, um, and. You know, it's quite a, it's, 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 Jack Nicholson is so sort of naughty and funny. And, you know, for the first two thirds of the film, he's just, it's funny watching him disrupt the systems and slowly these, you know, basically he's in a a mental institution, as you know, full of other fellow, well, he doesn't really have any kind of major mental illness, really. He's being trapped there by, you know, by the law. Um, And all the, there's this very charismatic nurse who's who's the boss of the place, and she feels very threatened by him because he basically says, "Hey guys, you don't need to take your medication. You don't need to listen to her. You don't need to do these therapy things. Let's steal a boat and go fishing or stuff like that." So <laughs> he's a, he's one he's a disruptor, and you know, for the first two thirds of the film, it's it's very very funny and heartwarming, but it ends in tragedy. I love it. What what a choice. Uh, One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest. Uh, you, you mentioned earlier that the 70s is, is probably your favourite decade of cinema. I mean, just to list off a couple of the movies that I love from the 70s. I mean, my favourite film of all time is from the 70s, which is Jaws from 1975. Oh, my God. <laughs> right. Yes, brilliant. Brilliant. Others, Halloween, Alien, Alien, 1979. Yeah, yeah, of course. But uh, my, my third favourite film of all time is also from the 70s, uh, 1977, Smokey and the Bandit. <laughs> I loved Bob it. Bob Reynolds. Right? Oh, but, yeah, I know. He's, what I mean, he's, he is, he is the sums up the 70s. Even when he was in Boogie Nights, uh, which is in the 90s or late 90s, he was a 70s character. I mean... That's a that's a great choice because that's a good summing up of the seventies as a decade. <laughs> uh, I love it. Well, we're ending with one flow over the cuckoo's nest on the big screen. The curtains are closing. The guests are milling out, smiling, chatting, and thanking you, Simon, for taking them on an incredible night of the movies. But before you go, it's the big one. Tell us an exclusive, never before heard bit of information about your career past present or future well it's sort of it's sort of connected to my career i suppose because it sort of makes me it it sort of informs a lot of what i do but when i was when i was young uh after after i'd worked on uh the 20th century fox and after i'd worked on an amazing tv show years ago called Edge of Darkness is a BBC series. Yeah, yeah. Um, I, I was out of work and I had a friend who was a journalist who was working in Beirut. And um, on Boxing Day, 
I said to my parents, I still have it at home, I said to my parents, oh, just to let you know, tomorrow I'm going to Beirut for three months. And they, they went mad. <laughs> said you can't go there because they were at war. Um, and I did go. And I had the most exciting time of my life staying with my friend, my dear friend Rick, uh, in some crummy flat. Uh, and we were taking photographs and working on the subs desk and driving around Beirut, which was basically a sort of war-torn place full of car bombs and stuff. And it was, you know, I was too stupid to be scared in those days. So it was pretty much the most exciting thing I ever did. Wow. I mean, as a kid growing up in the 80s, like, as a, I mean, a proper child, even I was aware on the news of what was going on in Beirut. It was like, you know, there was the whole, like, the, the Terry Waite kidnapping. That was Beirut, I think it was. Yes, yes. So you were there and you weren't scared because you were so young as to not really have that indestructibility that you have when you're young. Yeah, it's that it's that thing, you know, you drive up to a checkpoint and there's men with guns there, you go, Hi guys, how are you doing? And they all sort of they're just kids with guns, you know, they wanna they wanna make jokes. So you your sort of false confidence carries you through the most amazing situations. And no, I'd be terrified and I wouldn't do it. As happens it happens to us all with age as we get older, you sort of become more aware of yeah. your mortality. But wow, that's great. Thank you for that exclusive, Simon, and that is it. Your taxi has arrived to ferry you back to reality. But before you go, let's recap your perfect night out at the cinema. You are going with Sam Shepard at five to nine in the evening for a jammed screening. You're sitting in the front towards the front of the sphere, which we are borrowing from Las Vegas in the middle of the row. You are having popcorn, sweet and salted for that surprising handful. You never know what's next. Hot dog with all the toppings and some minstrels. We are banning any kind of butter substitute from this foyer. We're putting up some posters as we make our way down the corridor. The first poster is your fondest movie memory of being in the projection booth and watching those carbon rods burn like crazy inside the projectors. The second poster is your worst movie memory, which was watching Silver Dream Racer with your parents having just been dumped. The third poster depicts the last performance that brought you to tears. Sandra Huller and Milo Machada Grainer in Anatomy of a Fall. And the final poster depicts your unpopular movie Opinion, which is the days of heaven, while gorgeous, is a tiny bit boring. We're playing a trailer on the big screen in the auditorium for the movie you're most looking forward to seeing, Maestro. Uh, next up, the movie moment that makes you literally or metaphorically pump your fist in the air. Special mention to Han Solo reappearing at the end of Star Wars, but it's Thelma and Louise driving off the cliff at the end of the movie. The movie moment you consider cinema's most shocking is the end of One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest, the line or piece of dialogue from the movie that most affected you, and for the first ever time on the show, we have a tattoo of that on your arm, Joe. You're the only one from 1969's Midnight Cowboy. The best use of music in a movie, Steeler's Wheel, from Reservoir Dogs, stuck in the middle with you. And finally, we are playing on the big screen. One flew over the cuckoo's nest, and that is it. Simon, thank you for taking us on that trip to the movies. Have you had a good time? It's been a fantastic night. It's been, I've eaten too much popcorn, but I've had a brilliant time. Thank you very much. It's been a pleasure talking to you and congratulations on The Family Plan out on Apple TV Plus on December the 15th. Brilliant. Well, lovely to see you. Thank you so much and see you again. 
And as Simon's cab carries him away from our virtual cinema, off into the distance, we must all leave his movie paradise and return to reality, but to soften the blow. How would you like a pair of tickets for a night out at a very real Odeon cinema? Each week, we give away a pair to someone who leaves us a review of the show on Apple Podcasts. It's that simple. So jump on there, leave us a review, and if I read it out, we will send you some tickets. The competition is only open to UK residents, and the tickets exclude Odeon Leicester Square and Odeon Lux. And just before I say my final farewell for this episode. A quick reminder, you can find the full video for today's Simon Ketlin Jones interview and indeed for every guest over on our Trip to the Movies YouTube channel. So please head over there and as I said at the start, help us grow the pod by hitting subscribe. Thank you. And that really is it, but I'll be back next week with a very special episode as one of our favourite guests returns to deliver a festive holiday special. Until then, have a great week. Bye-bye.